Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the World Affairs Podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Gordon, and today I'm talking to Aren Duzgun about his new book, Capitalism, Jacobinism, and International Relations, Revisiting Turkish Modernity, out earlier this year from Cambridge University Press. Western interpretations of the Ottoman Age of Reform and the Turkish Republic often evaluate these histories against an idealized, essentialized narrative of European history in which a triumphant bourgeois class instigated transitions to political liberalism and capitalism. Consequently, their explanations of persistent authoritarian tendencies and status economic development policies focus on Uh, what features of European modernity have been missing or insufficiently present in Turkey. My guest today, Aran Duzgun, argues that this approach to comparative historical analysis not only fails to grasp Ottoman and Turkish history on its own terms, but it also gets European history wrong by overlooking the variety of trajectories of political and economic development that have characterized European history from the Age of Revolutions onwards. Duskin argues that the concept of Jacobinism holds the key to understanding both Ottoman and Turkish modernization and transitions to modernity in continental Europe that did not correspond to the narrative of bourgeois revolutions that undergirds both liberal and Marxist theories of modernization. We will discuss the origins of the Jacobin route to modernity, how the Jacobin model relates to common understandings of capitalist political economies, and why a book about Turkish and Ottoman history needed a chapter on French history. Eren Duzgun is Assistant Professor of International Relations at the University of Nottingham's China campus in Ningbo, China. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Jeff. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to join me. Um, my first question, as is custom- customary in New Books uh, Network interviews, is um, about how you came to write this book. Uh, reinterpreting Turkey's path of economic and political development is quite a big topic for a dissertation uh, and a first book. What made you decide to pursue this topic? Um, okay, so uh, thanks so much for having me, Jeffrey. Um, well, what I do in this book is actually is not only a reinterpretation of the Turkish route to modernity, as you said in your introduction, but I do that on the basis of a reinterpretation of the history of modern Western Europe. In the book, I try to develop a novel account of the consequences of the French Revolution through the concept of Jacobinism, and then I applied this new interpretation to the case of Ottoman and Turkish modernizations. How did I end up studying this topic? 
Well, um, I did my PhD in political science at York University in Canada. Actually, I went to York with an entirely different PhD project in mind. But after two years of coursework, I ended up writing about what would eventually become my book. Um, a bit more specifically, at York, I was introduced to two big and perhaps rather old debates in historical sociology. First was the question of the origins of capitalism, and second related to the debates revolving around the, around the French Revolution, especially its socioeconomic consequences and its world historical significance and legacy. So I believe I drew some important insights from these debates, which then enabled me to ask and answer some new questions about the Turkish road to modernity. Right. And uh, your key argument is that Jacobinism constitutes a geopolitically related yet qualitatively different path to modernity than capitalism. What is Jacobinism and how is the rise of Jacobinism in France shaped by the emergence of capitalism in Britain? Well, indeed, the connections and differences between British capitalism and French Jacobinism constitute very hard on my analysis. But before I got to that point in my research, I had to ask some more fundamental questions about capitalism. What is capitalism and how to historicize it? In particular, in these debates, I was convinced by a specific argument repeatedly made by such scholars like Robert Brenner and Ellen Maxson's Woods, and perhaps to a certain extent Karl Polanyi, that capitalism is a historically specific phenomenon. What I mean by this is that in conventional approaches to international relations, historical sociology, and global history, capitalism is more often than not associated with either commercial activity, production, private property, or wage labor. I argue that such a characterization is misleading, both historically and methodologically, because all these phenomena, such as commerce, wage labor, or market production, can be dated back to ancient societies. They existed almost since the time immemorial. Therefore, by taking these phenomena as necessary indicators of the existence of capitalism in history, we tend to transhistoricize capitalism. We tend to see capitalism present at all times and at all places in some embryonic form. Obviously, this is not to deny that capitalism increases the volume of commercial activity, it increases production, it consolidates the right to private property, it increases the size of a commodified workforce. But Taking these as necessary and transhistorical indicators of the beginning of capitalism in history simply collapses capitalism's consequences into its causes. Therefore, by uncritically equating these phenomena to the beginning of capitalism in history, we simply end up assuming the prior existence of capitalism in order to explain its origins, in order to explain its development, which verges on teleology. Departing from such transhistorical conceptions in my work, I suggested that perhaps we will be on better grounds to conceptualize capitalism, not just as commerce, not just as wage labor, not just as private property per se, but as market dependence. Market dependence as a term belongs to Ellen Mix's words, and it signifies that the transitions to capitalism had nothing to do with the occasional sale of surplus product and surplus labor, which is indeed transhistorical, but required a political intervention, an institutional setup 
to systematically eliminate non-market survival strategies so that the market turns into the main institution responsible for social reproduction. In other words, capitalism does not refer to the market per se, but it's a politically constituted marketplace that systematically subordinates the right to subsistence to the right to property. Therefore, in a setting that is becoming capitalist, we would be or we should be able to observe, at least in principle, not just commerce, not just wage labor, not just private property, but a socio-legal order that compels people to depend on the market for their survival. In this context, the market is not just a space of opportunity where goods and services are occasionally sold, but it becomes an imperative for social reproduction in general. So a long story short, market dependence, in my view, enables us to go beyond transhistorical conceptions of capitalism towards a historical-specific understanding of it. And as soon as we adopt such a historical-specific understanding of capitalism, we find out that while a capitalist society was developing in England during the early modern period, mainland Europe was not following their English counterpart with some time lag, as often assumed. Capitalism began to develop in England during the early modern period under historically specific social and geopolitical circumstances, but it did not expand to the rest of the continent before the 19th century. So this is just another way of saying that, at least until the early 19th century, mainland Europe, and perhaps above all, modernity's archetypal home for several scholars, France, was marked by fundamentally different forms of social organization from which capitalist social relations were by and large absent. So the implication is that if this argument holds water, and I try to show that it does in my book, we are confronted by an important question, which is the question of what to make of the socioeconomic character of the French Revolution and its geopolitical legacy. For example, if the political rights and obligations conventionally associated with the French Revolution, such as universal citizenship, universal equality, universal conscription, as well as the introduction of modern property rights, had nothing to do with the development of capitalist social relations, how to make sense of them. Or let me put it this way, Several revisionist historians and historical sociologists have long argued that French society was not that capitalist before the revolution, and even the revolution itself did not crack this non-capitalist social fabric in any decisive way. Um, they made the argument that the revolutionary state in France expanded and consolidated subsistence-oriented subsistence peasantry on land, and it also led to the customary regulation of manufacturing activity in urban centers. Therefore, it's not too common to not unto uh, well, it's not too uncommon to argue that the revolution provided a contradictory ground for the development of capitalism. Yet, what I found missing in this literature was a systematic inquiry into the question as to what the revolution and post-revolution French modernization was actually about. In other words. Existing approaches to the French Revolution recognized that the revolution was not directly triggered by and it did not immediately lead to capitalism, yet they did not seek to answer, if not capitalism, what the revolution was about. If not capitalism, what to make of the revolution and its socioeconomic and geopolitical legacy. So my argument in this regard is something like this. During the early modern period, as I mentioned earlier, in Britain, a market-dependent society was developing, where the market 
uh, ultimately became the primary, but not the only, but the primary institution responsible for social reproduction. And also in early modern Britain, there was a notion of citizenship, there was a notion of equality, there was a notion of a British nation, yet all of these modern concepts were conditioned to some form of property ownership. Unless you owned a substantial amount of property, unless you were a big and active player in the marketplace, you wouldn't be considered equal in the political space and you wouldn't be considered a part of the British nation. But by contrast, what characterized the French society and economy from the revolution until Waterloo, from the revolution until at least 1815, was a social order that institutionalized a set of, a set of new non-market means to, access, to accessing land inequality. A bit more accurately, in France, the revolutionary elite introduced modern political rights and equality, yet they did not condition the enjoyment of these rights to some form of property ownership, as was the case in Britain. Instead, under severe social and geopolitical circumstances, the French elite linked the citizens' enjoyment of property and equality to their service to the nation, to patri. So the most important form of serving the nation was participation in the newly formed citizen army. In France, at least until 1815, people had access to property and equality, not because they were successful commodity producers, not because they successfully participated in the marketplace, but because they participated in levée en masse in the citizen army and they became citizen soldiers. So the implication is that what determined peasants' access to land and equality was not their competitiveness in the marketplace, but their participation in the citizen army. Participation in the army, rather than participation in the marketplace, gave them land and civic status. Therefore, the bottom line is that the invention of the citizen army in France developed as a substitute for the capitalist market in Britain. And also, in a similar manner, I argue that the French attempted to centralize and universalize free public education as another extra market mechanism to appropriate peasant bodies and energies. Admittedly, universal education um, was much less successful than universal conscription in terms of its implementation by the revolutionary state. But what matters is that the state elites, the revolutionary elite, given their inability to subject the peasantry to capitalist market imperatives, they attempted to centralize and universalize public education as an alternative tool to mobilize and contain um, uh, lower classes. So the flip side of this is that public education provided a Jacobin connection between the right to property and equality and to the service for the nation. Because when education became accessible to all subjects, it, at least in principle, Ended the, systematic, ended the systematic exclusion of the lower classes from the state and state-generated income, and the need to mobilize and contain mobile, um, mobile, uh, well, to uh, the need to mobilize and contain popular classes for the state, led to the generalization of access to state, which over time led to the emergence of a large citizen bureaucracy. So, in short, in revolutionary and Napoleonic France. Subsistence, property, and equality were conditioned to 
military and bureaucratic mobilization instead of market competition. Therefore, unlike in Britain, where the public space was reserved exclusively for the property classes, at least until the second half of the 19th century, in France, the right to property and representation, the sources of subsistence and sources of sources of representation were extended to an army of peasantry with the condition of protecting the nation. So this means that, unlike socialism, the French elite did not annihilate private property, but at the same time, unlike capitalism, they did not subordinate the right to subsistence to, 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 to the right to property either. Private property was institutionalized, but it was obtained through participation in the army and bureaucracy instead of through market competition. So this means that the birth of citizen soldier and citizen bureaucrat or citizen officer endowed with land inequality was not just a political and military phenomenon, but it signified the rise of a new form of uh, property and political economy. In other words, the revolution institutionalized and generalized a new non-market means to accessing land inequality. Therefore, citizen soldier was not only the political or military component of an emerging capitalism in France, as often assumed, but instead it entailed a new regime of political economy, a new set of property relations radically different from capitalism. I call this new form of political economy or geopolitical economy Jacobinism. And uh, just to add on that very briefly, the significance of Jacobinism can hardly be overstated because Jacobinism did not revolutionize France only, but also provided a blueprint for other modernization projects. The Jacobin armies, which were virtually unstoppable until Waterloo, until 1815, showed to the rest of the continent and, and to the rest of the world the geopolitical viability or geopolitical effectiveness of an alternative model of modernization that did not invoke, that did not require the commodification of the means of life. So my argument is that by providing a blueprint for other revolutionary projects, Jacobinism initiated novel social and geopolitical dynamics that deeply impacted the making of the modern social and international order. Therefore, Jacobinism emerged as a social, economic, and geopolitical alternative to capitalism more than a century before the rise of Bolshevism in world history. And indeed, when we look at Western European history, we see that economic and geopolitical challenges generated by capitalism on the one hand and Jacobinism on the other compelled most Western European states to implement capitalism and Jacobinism concurrently at the same time. So on one this means that on the one hand, they took steps towards commodifying labor and land, therefore creating market-dependent societies. And at the same time, they invoked popular sovereignty by introducing the citizen soldier as the new engine of the political and military machine. So, however, the long-term result of this mutually conditioning uh, course of development in the Western European context was the gradual subordination of, uh, of Jacobinism or Jacobin notions of equality and property to the emerging capitalist market. By the second half, if not the third quarter of the 19th century, Capitalism by and large universalized itself in Western Europe, ultimately assimilating the historical legacy of Jacobinism into its systemic logic.
So at first sight, therefore, Jacobinism, given its short lifespan in Western Europe, seems to be a phenomenon that belonged only to a distant past, producing only minor consequences for the constitution of the modern world as a whole. Yet in my work, I, in my book, I ask, what if Jacobinism was not just a passive bystander to capitalism? What if Jacobinism, under certain social, temporal, international circumstances, could serve as a substitute for capitalism much longer than it did in Western Europe? And indeed, when I introduce Jacobinism into my analysis of Ottoman and Turkish modernity, that's precisely what I found out, and Ottoman and Turkish modernization efforts appeared in a totally new light. So uh, perhaps I should stop here before I get uh, sidetracked too much from your origin question. Yeah, that was a that was a great answer um, because uh, there's a lot to unpack in order to understand the significance of of Jacobinism and to understand how it fits into these broader debates about, um, as you said. Uh, um, the origins of capitalism and the legacies of the French Revolution, and in fact, just understanding European history as a um, uh, much more differentiated than the picture of 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 European modernization that seems to serve as as um, the background set of assumptions to much social theorizing and um, historical sociological work, particularly when this, you know, model of Europe is compared to uh, um, peripheral or non-Western or however you want to call them uh, uh, um, societies. Um, um, So that, and that, um, well, before I move on to the next question, there is one follow-up question I would like to ask um, about your response here. And, um, it uh, might be a, a bit of a tricky one, but um, I'm I'm interested to understand. Um, it seems to me that you're understanding this is a historical materialist work, right? This is a uh, um, within the body of theoretical and historical sociological work um, that falls under the heading of historical materialism because you place. Um, um, practices of how human societies uh, um, interact with the world around them to reproduce their their social orders um, at the forefront of your analysis. Um, what does historical materialism mean for you, basically? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, that's a bit of a broad, uh, open-ended question, but um, basically, um, how do you uh, situate your work in the historical materialism field? Hmm. Um, in the field of historical materialism, or perhaps in the broader field of historical sociology. Okay, so um, I guess your question has two components. Uh, first is why historical materialism in the first place, and then placing my own approach uh, within the field of materialism okay so as for your first question um okay so why historical materialism well first of all i think um apart from uh, my own political uh preferences um historical materialism enables me to ask why questions and it basically enables me to get to the bottom of things in the sense that it is, it is a very good tool to be able to ask 
why questions and get to the root causes of things. And uh, because um, it basically aims to demystify most of the things, in my view, other approaches to social sciences take for granted. For example, the state, for example, the dynamics of the international order. Where do they come from? Usually these questions are not, in my view, sufficiently answered from any other perspective. So historical materialism basically with a, with a, with a, with a, um, with an emphasis on the historically changing circumstances of uh, of um, uh, social reproduction I would say so it's not so it's about class but class basically changes its its form over time and it's a very historically changing form and so it cannot be basically equated to economic relations per se. And um, so in that sense, I do everything in my work to avoid economic reductionism and, and economic reductionist approaches to history and historical sociology and historical materialism. And, uh, and um, that's why the kind of historical materialism that I've adopted in my book, which is political Marxism, uh, I think is a good tool to be able to, uh, it's a good tool for the task of historicization. And if historicization is at the very center of almost all um, all uh, historical sociological approaches to, 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 to um, let's say, modernity or modernization, I think political Marxism is one of the best. Yeah, and and I think that um, you really touched on what I was trying to get at with this question uh, when you talked about um, uh, the problem of economic reductionism and how to um, and thinking about social reproduction as something that's broader than just the reproduction of a particular understanding of class society or or the economy uh, narrowly construed because um, I. Uh, I know I I have for a long time, and I know a lot of other people kind of associate his, historical materialism with the critique of capitalism, and that's important and obviously. But uh, there are uh, a wide range of of debates in the field about um, what what is capitalism, what is a mode of production, what is a um, um, what is the economy, right? And and I find that uh, some approaches to historical materialism apply this kind of abstract, narrowly construed understanding of capitalism and basically cloud out any kind of uh, everything else is just pre-capitalist or <laughs> um, um, other than capitalist and kind of not theorized I mean, everything everything is capitalist as well, right? You know, that's uh, at least some people tend to think as well. But capitalism is a thousand years old thing, right? Yeah, that was the the Cambridge uh, history of capitalism that you know had two volumes, one volume of which was like the ancient world or something like that. Um, and, uh, I know historians in particular tend to be, uh, a little, um, hesitant about or re- reluctant about even defining capitalism in the history of capitalism, uh, research field. And I think that, um, it's hard to study something that you don't have boundaries to or, um, conceptualize very deeply, but, uh, 
Um, I think that one of this book's real contributions is, is using the tools of historical materialism to think about other kinds of political economies that have existed in modernity because um, capitalism, uh, as you said, arrived much later uh, than um, uh, a lot of people realize in, in much of the world. Um, at least in terms of the social pro- property relations uh, conceptualization of capitalism. Um, okay, so um, uh, the next question I wanted to ask you about, basically, is um, about the the problem of um, using um, uh, of basically Eurocentric uh, uh, approaches to comparative historical sociology and um, any kind of comparative work. It's so interesting to me that a book that is largely devoted to interpreting Ottoman and Turkish history includes a chapter that aims to challenge, uh, as you put it, evolutionary and unilinear readings of Western European modernity. Uh, Your work demonstrates the importance of reinterpreting European history for the project of developing a non-Eurocentric social science. Um, How have essentialist and idealized narratives of quote-unquote European development influenced the interpretation of Ottoman and Turkish modernization uh, that you engage with in in your um, chapters on uh, the Ottoman Empire in Turkey? Um. Well, I definitely agree with you that there are so many idealized conceptions out there about the development of the West itself that dissecting and demystifying these idealized conceptions is the key to showing that the West and the non-Western world were not qualitatively different until quite recently in world history. And such an appreciation, I certainly agree that such an appreciation uh, in turn contributes to a deeper understanding of the multilinearity of world historical development in general. For example, uh, my critique of dominant transhistorical conceptions of capitalism in Western Europe had one major implication for my understanding of the development of of, uh, capitalism and modernity in Turkey. Because the conventional argument about Turkish modernization holds that capitalism began to develop in the Ottoman Empire starting from the 19th century onwards based on the intensification of commercial relations with Western Europe, especially following uh, the Tanzimat reforms and so on. So it is assumed that a sort of what they call a peripheral capitalism began to develop due to the commercial ties linking the empire to the capitalist world market. As such, these approaches, in my view, they wrongly equate uh, capitalism to either trade or just uh, production for the market. Therefore, as I've just explained, they not only perpetuate a transhistorical conception of capitalism, but also tends to, they tend to presume uh, they tend to presume the existence of qualitative differences between the West and the Ottoman Empire, which in fact did not exist. Therefore, in the book, um, I believe I've adopted a historically more specific understanding of capitalism, which enabled me to formulate a different periodization of the origins and development of capitalism in Turkey. And likewise, the more I read about the, the more uh, I read about the debates on the French Revolution, the more I realized that 
most of the macro level analysis of Ottoman and Turkish modernizations were in fact informed by very idealized conceptions of Western European European history itself. In other words, most of the macro level historical sociological analysis of Ottoman and Turkish Ottoman and Turkish modernity um, rest on standard narratives of Western capitalist development, according to which the modernness modernness of the Ottoman and Turkish experience is evaluated. So therefore, unsurprisingly, the so-called peculiarities of the Turkish route to modernity, for example, its transition to capitalism from above, its patrimonialism, its conservative modernization, its peripheral capitalism, its incomplete bourgeois revolution, alongside the persistence of bureaucratic interests and weaknesses of bourgeois classes and so on, were all derived from a counter-reference point in history that hardly existed. Because even the most archetypal, when we look at Western European history itself, we basically see that even the most archetypal cases of bourgeois revolution and capitalist development, such as England and France, widely diverged from the premises of the conventional narratives of the rise of the West. Therefore, my book tries to answer the question, if Turkish modernization cannot be understood as a deviation, as an aberration from an idealized Western model of modernization, how to make sense of it. And what I found out is that the Ottoman and original Kemalist experiment with modernity, so from roughly the mid-19th century until the mid-20th century, did not have much to do with capitalism or patrimonialism per se, but to the contrary, Ottoman and Turkish modernizations suspended the option of market society and they attempted to formulate a non-capitalist and non-socialist route to modernity. Private property uh, began to be institutionalized in many parts of the Ottoman Empire and Turkey, yet without overriding the peasantry's customary rights on land and their right to subsistence. So this was a new regime of political economy in which the right to property, right to land, right to equality were not determined by people's ability to successfully compete in the marketplace, but their political and geopolitical contribution to the survival of the state. So as such, historically speaking, Ottoman and Turkish modernizations did not lead to the rise of a peripheral state capitalism, as often argued, but to the rise of a historically specific Jacobinism. Right? And Ottoman and Turkish reformists um, selectively appropriated Jacobinism and combined it with local social intellectual resources. So the bottom line, therefore, just to answer your question a bit more directly, to address it a bit more directly, what I basically did is... Uh, I did not basically buy the standard conceptions of Western European development, according to which the quality or or, or according to which um, the quality of modernness in Turkey was judged. And but as soon as I unraveled, as soon as I tried to uncover some of the um, some of the main tenets of the of, of the standard conception of Western European development, my interpretation of Ottoman and Turkish modernizations also uh, began to appear in a total new light. Yeah, this is one of uh, the big strengths of the book to me because um, it bothers me to no end how much of Western uh, comparative social science um, implicitly uses this idealized uh, and essentialist narrative of 
Western European or uh, U.S. Um, um, modernization uh, as the the standard against which uh, uh, other societies are are evaluated and inevitably fall short because these standards. Um, uh, overlook the multilinear uh, paths of development that we see in European and U.S. history. They uh, often tend to uh, uh, downplay or outright erase some of the darker sides of of Western European and U.S. modernity. Um, uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, basically... Um, lament how violent uh and uh, other states are and other societies are uh over without asking you know how 13 colonies hugging the atlantic coast became a continental republic for example uh, but uh uh it, it, it's something that is absolutely pervasive on topics ranging from um the origins and spread of capitalism to state formation to democratization to how political institutions work i see this everywhere this idealization of a particular story of uh and a particularly rose-tinted uh story of western european and u.s history as this uh unspoken benchmark and um that's why i think more more uh comparative historical work has to take the approach you did of not just studying uh um these other societies quote other other you know with the uh, capital o but also uh you know, uh, reinterpreting the history of, um, of Western Europe and the U S and, uh, demonstrating that, uh, it, you know, it's not as different as it, <laughs> as, as, uh, uh, people in the West would like it, like to make it, um, make it well, out. There to are me. Differences. Obviously there are differences, right? There are differences. In the sense that, like international context, is at least you know, if we're talking about contemporary uh, context, the international context of state making, democratization, building building markets, they're all different. Like temporally, socially, are different. But at the same time, we really have history up until the um, up until the nineteenth century. We basically, see that these societies were not qualitatively different, right? And that's 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 an important point to make, and that's an I think important point of departure for 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 a non-eurocentric analysis of these societies right um so so turning now uh in more depth to your case study chapters um uh, your, fir- your first chapter on Ottoman history deals with uh, what some scholars would call the Ottoman Age of Reform, encompassing the Tanzimat Reform Era, the reign of Sultan Abdul Hamid II, and the Young Turk regime. Um, why did Ottoman elites attempt to emulate the Jacobin model, and how is Ottoman Jacobinism shaped by the empire's own history and Islamic culture? Okay, so... Um... Let me just remind you that, as I said earlier, most Western European states implemented capitalism and Jacobinism concurrently, right? They implemented capitalism uh, in the sense that they took steps towards commodifying labor and land, to, to mainly to reinforce their fiscal base. And at the same time, they also invoked popular sovereignty by 
introducing the citizen soldier as the new engine of the political and military establishment. That's precisely what the Ottoman elites, at least initially, attempted to do as well. Under severe geopolitical challenges following the Tanzimat, the Ottoman Empire institutionalized property rights to empower the fiscal base of the empire while taking steps to create uh, citizen soldiers. But the problem is that both capitalism and Jacobinism required, to varying degrees, the disruption of the traditional social structure uh, which the Ottoman Empire was based on. Um, for one thing, capitalism required the empowerment of property owners and the right to exploit their property as they wished. And this also entailed, under, but this also entailed undermining the use rights of peasants, usufruct rights of peasants, who came to use those lands for centuries. In other words, the enactment, enforcement of capitalist property rights required the destruction of peasantry's use rights, which used to characterize the traditional logic of property relations in the Ottoman Empire. That said, besides trying to reinforce the legal basis of private property, um, every major legal text proclaimed by the Ottoman Empire from the Tanzimat until the end of World War I did two things. On the one hand, they asserted the equality of all imperial subjects, and on the other, they attempted to introduce military service as a universal and individual duty. Therefore, being equal was explicitly connected to uh, doing military service. And so and in this context, unsurprisingly, proclaiming private property and equality at the same time led to um, different reactions among the Ottoman public, generating conflicting demands on land. For example, tax farmers attempted to subsume peasant lands into their private estates by using the Tanzimat principles that secured private ownership. Yet the tax farmers' utilization of the Tanzimat for their own benefit was also countered by peasants who rebelled in many parts of the empire by radicalizing the Tanzimat principles concerning equality. Peasants, for example, interpreted the Tanzimat uh, principle of equality as giving them land, relaxing tax demands, saving them from tax farmers' oppression, and so on. Therefore, there was a constant tension between property and subsistence, which made the empire vulnerable to uh, internal rebellion as well as foreign intervention. And my argument in this context is that Ottoman and Ottoman ruling classes had to continuously negotiate the rights of the property individual on the one hand and the rights of the citizen soldier on the other. This balancing act, this balancing, seems to continue until the end of the empire, but especially from the 1870s onwards, property classes, um, uh, well, the property classes' right to use their land as they wished became socially and geopolitically too risky for the state elite to press any further. The state became increasingly reluctant to commodify land and transform the agrarian structure while increasingly turning to mass conscription and mass education to, to, to boost its geopolitical power. Therefore, from the 1870s onwards, the Ottoman elites, including the Young Turks, increasingly turned to the Jacobin project to foster, to, to, to boost 
steered political unity and geopolitical mobilization. So in this context, military service and public education, instead of the market, were institutionalized as the ultimate, not the only, but as the ultimate means to acquire political and economic rights. Universal conscription and universal education provided a substitute space for appropriating peasant bodies and securing the internal and external reproduction of the nation. So social reproduction, in other words, was increasingly detached from the market and linked to individuals' contribution to the welfare and survival of the nation. And going back to your question, why the Jacobin project instead of the capitalist project? Well, the Jacobin project was pretty much based on the continuation, persistence, and even perhaps the consolidation of peasants' rights on land. Jacobinism, it's true that Jacobinism forced peasants to do military service and uh, and conscripting people, conscripting peasants uh, generated huge reactions across the empire and people didn't want to go to military service for uh, understandable reasons. But at the same time, Jacobinism, while forcing peasants to do military service, it also recognized their political equality and allowed them a piece of land on which they could maintain their subsistence. By contrast, capitalism required the elimination of use rights, the elimination of non-market survival strategies. Therefore, it, it, it not only undermined peasants, or it, at least in principle, it not only aimed to undermine peasants' ways of life altogether, but also invoked a much more radical and riskier transformation than Jacobinism itself. So we can conclude that Jacobinism was easier to implement than capitalism, and indeed, um, the increasing threat of rebellion from inside and the threat of intervention from outside made Jacobinism much more an immediate solution for the geopolitical reproduction of the empire. Therefore, in my view, the evolution of the agrarian relations from the Tanzimat to the Young Turks had much more to do with Jacobinism than capitalism. And one major implication of Jacobinism in the Ottoman Empire was the militarization of economic issues. This is to say that at a time when property had no stable meaning, military service, not the market, became the main vehicle to obtain equality, subsistence, and property. Military duty and public education became the ultimate criteria for political and political recognition and economic subsistence. And to be sure, in this context, conscripting the Muslim population of Anatolia was at best a was at best a protracted affair, right? It was it developed gradually, but towards the end of the empire, especially um, um, uh, from uh, especially the Balkan Wars was a turning mark. Um, the state managed to universalize and regularize conscription among the Turkish-speaking Muslim population. However, the problem of conscription of non-Turkish elements couldn't be overcome until 1913 and only partially uh, after the state. Many non-Muslim subjects of the Ottoman Empire continued to successfully resist conscription by either leaving the country or obtaining a foreign passport. Ultimately, young Turks 
after uh, the revolution of 1908, grew increasingly suspicious of non-Muslim subjects and they became reluctant to conscript them. Non-Muslims were seen by the Young Turks uh, mainly as the collaborators of foreign enemies and a source of threat of partition from inside. So the result is that while the implementation of Jacobin forms of property and equality facilitated the establishment of new bonds, new social bonds between the state and the Anatolian Muslim population, it also led to the further marginalization of non-Muslim groups in the newly emerging public space. These groups especially from the Balkan Wars, Balkan, Wars, Balkan Wars onwards, these groups were subjected to a period of Jacobin terror or genocide because of not fitting the new standards of civilization characterized by the Jacobin model itself. And your question, I think, also allows me to say something about secularism a little bit. Very briefly... Earlier, I mentioned that the mobilization of the lower classes through public education and universal conscription led, at least in principle, to the generalization of access to the state in France. It was directly or indirectly the main source of income, unlike in Britain. In this context, the French elites had to employ new discourses of nation, religion, and science to universalize and restrict, universalize and limit the lower classes' access to the state. As a result, in the making of French citizens, nationalism and secularism, in a way unheard of in Britain, acquired entirely new meanings and practices. And also, uh, given the centrality of secularism and nationalism for the reproduction of Jacobin political economy, it is no wonder that Jacobinism was much more prone to Stick, what more? What was much more prone to stigmatize and eliminate the potentially, potentially, uh, potentially contending sources and interpretations of political community and religion. So, unsurprisingly, the strategic use and antagonization of religion was central to the reproduction of Jacobin po- political economy, both in France and Turkey. But there were also significant differences. Why? Because In France, just as in the Ottoman Empire, elites tended to develop religion-based responses to their conditions of geopolitical backwardness. Yet, given that the theological authority in France continued to to preserve some degree of autonomy even through the 19th century, the failure of religious establishment to deliver expected geopolitical outcomes could potentially generate an anti-clerical, anti-religious dynamic initiated by the state. Yet, in the Ottoman Empire, the religious establishment, especially the higher ulema, were by and large dependent on worldly authority, on the state, for their own reproduction. And in the absence of an autonomous power, specifically devoted to controlling religion, the Higher ulema, the religious establishment in the Ottoman Empire, found it harder to oppose the bureaucratic and geopolitical definition or redefinition of Islam. So the state cadres were able to reinterpret religion in, 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 uh, in conformity with their own political and geopolitical interests. So the implication is that the importation of French 
social, educational, and legal reforms into the Ottoman Empire did not inherit the Jacobin potential of creating an anti-religious modernity, but resulted in the, stand- resulted in the standardization of Islam. In other words, the Ottoman political imagination didn't have to operate within the framework of a politics versus religion binary, as was the case in France. Therefore, the combination of Jacobin and Ottoman social forms from the Tanzimat to the Young Turks, then to the early Republican period, generated a historically specific modernity that repeatedly substituted the anti-religious potential of Jacobinism for the bureaucratization of Islam. So what was coming to the generations of Ottoman and Turkish reformers was that they all attributed a fundamental role to Islam in the constitution of the modern public space. Sultans, reformers, and those in opposition, including the Young Turks and Kemalists, despite their conflicting interests and different interpretations of Islam, they all imagined and attempted to create a modern public space not insulated from but imbued by religion, but but imbued by Islam itself. Yeah, so in that regard, um, um, your interpretation uh, aligns with other um, recent works on um, um, understanding uh, re- the relationship between religion and politics in the late Ottoman Empire and the early Republic, that um, instead of conceiving of the Young Turks or um, uh, the Kamalists as trying to uh, banish Islam from the public sphere altogether, as trying to um, subordinate it to their larger political project and trying to uh, teach a kind of state-authorized version of Islam. And and in that regard, it's kind of, uh, um, it's certainly a, a, a category mistake to say that um there's some kind of separation of mosque and state, uh, uh, as you sometimes hear from uh, casual observers of Turkish politics, um, um, because uh, the the Kamala state was uh, uh, absolutely a theological actor um, insofar as they uh, uh, attempted to use Islam as part of their political project, a uh, particular interpretation of it to construct, as you said, a national political community. Um, and, um, and I think uh, uh, one thing that came to my mind as you were talking earlier about the um, uh, geopolitical uh, problems uh, associated with uh, attempting to introduce um, market relations in the countryside in a, in, in a deeper way. Um, it, primitive accumulation is is politically fraught, especially when the people who stand to lose from processes of primitive accumulation are uh, ostensibly members of your own political community. Um, I think that that's something that uh, the primitive accumulation literature doesn't really um, address head on in, in my mind, but I think is something that uh, uh, is an interesting implication of, of your interpretation. Um, so moving on to uh, uh, your chapter on Kemalism, uh, the Kemalist reforms of the early decades of the Turkish Republic are perhaps the purest example of the Jacobin model in Ottoman or Turkish history. Um, what were some of the contradictions of the Kemalist political economy and how did they shape political conflicts during this period? Hmm. 
Okay, so um, in 1923, the year the Turkish Republic was established, property was less a right enjoyed by those who used property productively, and it was much more a privilege for those who politically and geopolitically served the nation. So fulfillment of military and political duties rather than productive activity was the basis of social reproduction. And in the book in chapter five, I turn to the question of how successful the early Republican regime was changing the structure of property relations. I've discussed at length the concept of state capitalism with particular reference to Germany and Italy during the interwar years, while questioning whether or not early Republican Turkey can be subsumed under the same rubric, under the same heading of state capitalism. Um, what I found is that despite substantial national differences, European state capitalisms of the interwar period attempted to stabilize and improve capitalism. By, and by doing so, they completely obliterated, they completely subordinated the Jacobin interpretations of property, equality, and popular sovereignty to the capitalist project. In the face of inflationary pressures, militant trade unions, and geopolitical challenges, therefore, the civic ideas of the French Revolution were totally discarded in favor of a new social order based on authority, discipline, and economic renovation in Western Europe during the interwar years. So the question I tried to answer was whether or not Kemalist modernization can be subsumed under the same rubric of state capitalism. And I've argued that, unlike their Western counterparts, state elites in Turkey were unable to impose market discipline on the bourgeois classes, and they were unwilling to initiate a capitalist transformation of agriculture. In the minds of Republican elites, there was a continuous threat of foreign intervention and domestic rebellion. Therefore, they were unable to impose market imperatives on the bourgeois classes, and they were also fearful of the divorce of the peasantry from land. A bit more specifically, in the countryside, um, the Republican elite implemented a series of what they call uh, populist measures or halkje measures, such as fiscal incentives and limited land redistribution. The state elite tried to preempt peasant dispossession as well as labor mobility, which they perceived as the ultimate danger to the existing sociopolitical order. And re relatedly, in the absence of a stable supply of labor power, industrialists, um, so this was also the period of the so-called uh, etatist period or etatist industrialization. So uh, there were uh, industrialists, especially uh, industrialists were developing, especially from um, the Great Depression onwards. So, but in the absence of a stable supply of labor power, because of the immobility of labor in agriculture, industrialists invested not invested only to reap easy profits in an economy completely sheltered from economic competition. They were organized in monopolies, they prevented competition, and they even sabotaged state plans to improve industrial productivity. So combined with the crisis of the world economy and the escalating threat of war during the 1930s, the state responded to its inability to establish capitalist markets or unwillingness to establish capitalist markets by 
consolidating Jacobin social forms and institutions as the basis of its modernization strategy. As such, political and geopolitical utility for the state, instead of market competition, once again provided subjects with access to property, means of subsistence, and civic status. Conscription and public education were set as the most legitimate criteria to participate in the political community and to have access to the means of subsistence and property. And Jacobinism, um, we should perhaps admit, that was quite effective in building the state and the nation. Yet the paradox of Kemalist Jacobinism was the following. Every citizen who was educated and who proved his political loyalty to the, uh, his political loyalty to the state by doing military service was entitled, at least in principle, to become an equal participant in the political and economic establishment. A potential increase in the number of politically equal citizens necessarily meant a more equal sharing of the state-generated state rents and income. Therefore, the Republican elites had to hierarchically redefine equality and civility by continuously, by continuously requalifying the rules of participation in the Republican political economy. So this became, an, this became an immediate problem, an acute problem, especially in the face of the absorption of greater numbers of communists ordinary people into public education and the resultant um, glut in bureaucratic countries. So in short, in early Republican Turkey, the rules of accessing the state, which was by far the main source and generator of income, had to be repeatedly conditioned to credentials other than citizenship and merit. In other words, the institutionalization of military structure and public education had direct and immediate implications for the economic structure, and they led to politically and geopolitically informed exclusions from the political space. In particular, in the minds of the Republican elites, Kurds are heterodox Muslim groups and non-Muslims were the usual suspects, and uh, they were deemed, uh, they, were, they, were, they were considered politically and geopolitically unreliable elements in the Republican order. Therefore, Kemalism used nationalism and secularism as the ultimate determinant of the right to access to state and property and equality. Put it a bit differently, in theory, Kemalism never gave up on its claim for the role of the individual, equality, popular sovereignty in the making of civilization. And this is in contrast to the totalitarian and corporatist regimes in Western Europe, to which Kemalism is often compared. Uh, because why? Because as I've just mentioned, these regimes eradicate the most progressive aspects of modernity in order to deepen and improve capitalism. Yet in early Republican Turkey, the regime recognized the rights of the individual, popular sovereignty, and the gains of the French Revolution, but given the non-capitalist character of prevailing property relations, as well as in the face of political and geopolitical uncertainties, the regime also endlessly racialized, militarized, and secularized the conditions of being civic, equal, and modern. And what is equally interesting here is that so I said that Kemalism tacitly yet persistently postponed the realization of egalitarian principles and democracy. Yet Kemalism's own official embracement of equality and democracy 
could still be used by the lower classes to radicalize these societal concepts, these concepts from within the official ideology of Kemalism itself. In other words, the Kemalist elite, under the immense pressures of external reproduction and intense political rivalry, had to develop a competitive peopleist program, Halchi program, during the War of Independence. And obviously, to be sure, the radical character of Kemalism would be significantly watered down after the war. The Kemalist elite turned peopleism by and large into a conservative phenomenon as a way of negating the existence of class differences and asserting the indivisibility of the nation. Yet, in an economy driven by political redistribution of the sources of income, the lower classes could still raise their stake by reinterpreting the Kemalist negation of class differences as a blueprint for a politically more equal, if not classless, society. Kemalism, which was essentially a conservative and elitist venture, could potentially be led astray by the lower classes and turn into a breeding ground for radical forms of political equality and citizenship. And that's why Kemalism can be seen both as a left-wing and right-wing ideology. That's why it led both the bureaucratic elitism and bureaucratic radicalism. And that's precisely what was going to happen in the 1960s and 70s as well. So in a nutshell, therefore, the question of ethnicity, the question of religion, the question of class were deeply intertwined in the early years of the republic. And um, because nationalism and secularism were not only political and cultural strategies, cultural strategies of modernization, instead um, they were born of an attempt to turn land and property into a right for the conscripted and educated and therefore loyal subjects of the republic. Therefore, they were not merely superstructural aspects, but they were central to the reproduction of Kemalist political economy. Yeah, I really like um, your emphasis on how um, um, religion and ethnicity, which are often um, um, analyzed under under the heading of of identity as um, uh, some kind of um, purely symbolic or superstructural uh, phenomenon, um, but these were the principles that. Um, determined who would have access to land and access to opportunities to advance in the economy. They had real material uh, consequences and um, uh, they um, very much were principles that shaped uh, the political economy of Turkey in the long term, as you, as you uh, discussed. And um, I think even going backwards, um, I've I've been thinking a lot about how um, um, extraterritoriality, which protected the um, um, uh, Christian uh, uh, members of the Ottoman Empire who had connections with um, um, merchants from Europe, uh, merchants from Europe tended to um, uh, develop clients among the Christian communities of of, of the Ottoman Empire. Um, these were extraterritoriality basically shielded these groups from um, uh, Ottoman practices of sovereignty attempts to regulate access to economic resources and to tax these people. And I think that um, there's certainly uh, a line of argument, uh, for example, in a recent article by uh, Laura Robson in uh, the American historical 
review that looks at the minority treaties as basically a recapit uh, a recapitulation of of capitulations, basically a, an attempt to restore the extraterritoriality uh, relationship between um, um, the European powers and uh, um, client groups within uh, uh, Turkey um, in in the wake of World War One, and so. Um, from the perspective of uh, a lot of these early Republican statesmen, issues of economic sovereignty were very much tied up with issues of, of religious identity and ethnicity because that's how the world economy was structured. Um, that's how how the rules of the game were established. Uh, there were different rules for for. Um, people who were co-religionists of the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world. Um, and and uh, I think that um, any analysis of citizenship policies or, or the politics of, of ethnicity and um, relations uh, between religious communities has to be situated in this uh, um world economy that um was not neutral with respect to these questions of identity and these and these issues of of uh um identity and where um the power to exercise sovereignty over groups of people depended on whether they were clients of more powerful political actors or not and i think that uh um you can't understand what the kamalists were doing without understanding that global picture Exactly, exactly. Both the global picture, but perhaps also the, um, the, the rules of reproduction in their own society, right? Because, because economic issues overlap, usually overlap, and most often overlap with political and cultural issues, especially in a non-capitalist context like early Republican Turkey and also before it. Why? Because, you know, it's simple in the absence of, uh, you know, so-called self-regulating market functioning according to, presumably according to its own laws, basically, it basically means that what we call economy is just composed of political and cultural struggles. Well, political and cultural struggles are not just superstructural um, structural aspects of what we call economy, but they are at the very heart of it, right? Because there's no... Economy. There's no economy as we understand it in the contemporary world, right? Economy is basically is is those so-called uh, you know struggles over how to define secularism because it has very deep, very wide implications uh, for the way in which people um, socially reproduce themselves. Right, right. Um, and it was, you know, I, I, I have also been thinking about um, the settler colonies as, as a contrast case where it was much easier to do to, for the state to implement primitive accumulation and the commodification of land and labor because the, and it, the people who stood on the losing end of that bargain were by and large not members of the intended political community. They were indigenous people. Right. And uh, um, it's much the the strategic calculations are much, much different when the people you're uh, primitively accumulating, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, land and uh, land from uh, are supposed to be members of your own political community and supposed to be um, uh, are, are people who you have to legitimate your rule in their eyes in order to have any kind of collective authority and collective power. Um, 
Yeah. Something, something, something that you said um, about primitive accumulation earlier, and uh, and uh, I, I, you know, it's just uh, it's it's a very important concept. But at the same time, I think it is more contested than it appears uh, because it's usually the the usual tendency is to equate primitive accumulation to dispossession, right? But I'm not sure if dispossession, for example, from you know, from my own perspective, from the the, the, the tradition that I come from, from the uh, from the Marxist perspective, whether or not this is a result or a or or a cause, right? So um, in that sense, I think, and and plus, if it is just automatically equated to dispossession, how about other forms of transition to capitalism, which does not, which does not um, uh, lead to dispossession, at least not immediately. Right. Yeah. 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 And I think that um, um, Robert Nichols's argument for uh, disaggregating the concept of primitive accumulation and thinking about um, um, dispossession, for example, and, you know, some some traditions of Marxism tend to put think of primitive accumulation as tied to the supply of labor primarily and that's you know what they how they emphasize it um um nichols argues for uh disaggregating these different aspects of of what are what is commonly packaged as primitive accumulation to separate out which which aspects are the causes and which are the consequences and and um for thinking about um just the wide variety of ways in which uh land became uh uh commoditized uh and and um non-market um uh modes of of social reproduction that depended on access to land were were curtailed um because this happened in a wide variety of different ways in different settings and i think that um the historical sociology of primitive accumulation would um is still kind of uh taking off in a way because uh, there's a lot of conceptual work to be done in thinking about the um, wide variety of different um, paths that this process took. Um, so you date the beginning of the expansion of capitalist social relations to the Democrat Party government led by Adnan Menderes in the 1950s. Um, yet, as you note, the transition to capitalism in the Turkish countryside was a protracted process. Um, what were the forces that drove and resisted this transition to capitalism, particularly in the agrarian sector? Well, uh, as I said earlier, during the interwar period, what was of utmost importance for the Kemalist elite was the stabilization of the countryside instead of its capitalist transformation. Yet after World War II, a new social and geopolitical context emerged. Uh, besides domestic, um, besides domestic concerns uh, related to the emergence of multi-party politics and so on, um, what made the state elites and landlords more willing to initiate a capitalist growth dynamic was the radical transformation of geopolitical circumstances, because the growing American recognition of uh, Turkey's geopolitical importance, significance, 
Okay, so what happened was obviously the emergence of a bipolar world order and um, and and basically emergence of USSR uh, at the gates of Turkey as a potentially uh, contending power, right? And Turkish elites were very um, afraid of a possible U.S. Uh, possible USSR Soviet intervention into Turkey. And uh, that's what they tried to do, actually, both during and after World War II. And uh, they also tried very hard to convince the Americans that Turkey is a strategic ally, and to use a term uh, from the contemporary world. And uh, so uh, in the sense that Turkey could be used against against the Soviet encroachment uh, onto the Middle East. And... After a while, the U.S. was convinced and uh, the growing American recognition of Turkey's geopolitical importance assured Turkey against Soviet military pressure. But at the same time, it allowed considerable leeway for the Democratic Party, uh, for, the, for the Democrat Party to initiate structural transformation in, in agriculture without being much concerned about the political and geopolitical troubles this transformation might have brought about. Therefore, after more than a hundred years after well, after more than a hundred years of modernization from the Tanzimat until the 1950s, Turkey finally found the geopolitical breathing space in which Capitalist property relations could be established without the imminent threat of domestic rebellion and foreign intervention, and all thanks to the extension of U.S. military protection and economic aid. So capitalist transformation begins in the 1950s. Uh, More specifically, what we see are the first steps towards building a market-dependent society. For example, in the countryside during the 1960s and 1970s, we see that agricultural productivity and yields increased in line with increases in the use of industrial tools and products in agriculture. This uh, basically indicates a shift from extensive to intensive agriculture, which would make the peasantry increasingly market dependent for their production. Also, peasants were provided credit, land and price support. Therefore, they became consumers as well as suppliers of the domestic market for the first time in Republican history. As a result, consumption habits began to change in the countryside, going beyond the logic of minimum subsistence. Furthermore, given that the peasantry was increasingly unable to meet the new standards of subsistence without engaging in market relations, the 1950s um, witnessed the first permanent mass migrations from the countryside to the urban centers. Therefore, the, uh, therefore chronic labor shortages, which uh, prevented, which undermined the earlier attempts at industrialization, began to be overcome with a continuous flow of a permanent labor force. And relatedly, the scientific management of the labor process began to take in factories, began, began to take root in factories, which involved uh, the introduction of uh, such measures like peace rate pay systems, new measures to avoid loss of time, new methods to minimize workers' ability to to negotiate the pace and sequence of the labor process and so on. So long story short, we can safely assume that from the 1950s onwards, 
capitalism began to develop in Turkey, both in the countryside and in towns, in manufacturing centers. So in this context, we need to remember that the capitalist transformation took place in a Jacobin shell. What I mean is that Jacobinism was used by different classes to contest as well as to produce the relations of capitalism in Turkey. For example, the first and perhaps the most radical moment of a Jacobin comeback uh, came, in, came, came in 1960 with the military intervention. Um, well, the coup, the military intervention, wanted to achieve what the military intervention wanted to achieve is rather complicated because the 14 military officers who led the coup was not a homogeneous group and they remained in power only for a year. But when we look at some of the things they said that they would do if they had remained in power, suggests that their aim was not to reorganize society along capitalist lines, but to radicalize the Jacobin revolution initiated by the early Republican regime. According to them, the revolution was interrupted by corrupt politicians, opportunistic businessmen, and landowners and religious conservatives. Therefore, they said they would, they would, fight, proper, they would fight poverty, inflation, class conflict, backwardness, laziness, ignorance, which they claimed could be attained through a number of policies and strategies, such as by socializing the health services, undertaking fiscal modernization by properly taxing the landlords and business classes, implementing economic planning, and perhaps above all, by expanding and transforming the education system and making educational qualification a precondition to the right to vote. So, they attempted to, in other words, they attempted to establish the Jacobin connection between education and equality. So in the book, I substantiate my argument by engaging the writings of Alparslan Turkesh, who was the leader of the 14 officers who led the uh, coup of 1960. But I don't have the time to go into the details of my argument here, but I believe that it offers some novel insights concerning the socio-economic character of the coup in 1960 and what the coup, in fact, wanted to achieve. But perhaps more important than the intentions of the coup, what we basically see from the coup until the preparation of the new constitution in 1961, what, what we basically see is that the Jacobin faction Okay, it was defeated within the army, but it continued to pose a grave threat to the rest of the social forces. Therefore, the social forces that replaced the Jacobins had to concede certain populist measures invoked by the Jacobins themselves. In other words, in order to preempt the appeal of Jacobin officers among the wider population, the military generals and their uh, civilian, uh, their civilian supporters um, who replaced the Jacobin faction, they had to incorporate into the new constitution some of the demands originally invoked by these Jacobin officers. In other words, they had to appeal to new potential allies and expand the scope of freedoms in order to forestall the danger of a Jacobin dictatorship. As a result, such principles like economic and social planning, universal health care, the right to land, the right to work, a full employment policy, and to the Constitution of 1961, as did wider civil rights, greater universal autonomy, a proportional electoral system, the freedom to organize and assemble, and the right to strike. So in addition, therefore, 
um, in, therefore, in addition to being secular and nationalist, the new constitution redefined the Kemalist Republic or the, or the Republican regime in Turkey as a social and democratic state. Adding these two principles to the traditional Kemalist establishment would have enormous implications for the way capitalism would develop in the following two decades. For, from this angle, we can argue that the left Jacobin legacy would be no longer able to stop, but continue to complicate the development of capitalism in Turkey. But having said that, this is not just a one-sided story, because we have to also note that other social forces were using Jacobinism for their own purposes, such as industrialists, for example, who used Jacobinism to provide the social and institutional framework in which capitalism would be imposed in Turkey. What I mean is that after 1960, Turkey attempted to economic planning and experimented with import substitution policies. And what happened to economic planning in Turkey is a rather conventional story, which can be observed perhaps in several developing countries, uh, at least until the 1980s. What happened was that initially the planners, who were highly educated technocrats, drafted a plan that would enable the state to exercise absolute authority over the allocation of sources of public investment and incentives for the private sector. According to the planners, state funds uh, should be allocated in such a way that forced private and public enterprises to rationalize their production by minimizing their costs, increasing the productivity of labor, and increasing their international competitiveness. And likewise, protectionism was acceptable only if it uh, supported competitiveness abroad and economic innovation. So the structure, well, the state planning organization was eventually put under parliamentary control after uh, the Jacobin uh, threat was, uh, was, 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 Jacobin threat was uh, withdrawn and it retreated and the civilians uh, came to, came to uh, power once again. Uh, the structure, the, uh, state planning organization was eventually put under parliamentary control which rendered the which made the technocratic control of the economy impossible from the very beginning so the plan to restructure exist, exist, existing tax credit subsidy and investment regimes with a view to increasing innovation and international competitiveness was criticized and eventually rejected by politicians for violating freedom of property and democratic rights. And who were these politicians? And basically the politicians I'm referring to are the representatives of right-wing parties who were the representatives of that, representatives of big bourgeois uh, classes in Turkey. And as such, state promotion of industrialization from the 1960s to the end of the 1970s by and large boiled down to mere distribution of fiscal privileges and favors to the private sector with almost no gain that could have been obtained from increases in productivity and international competition. And thanks to the privileged access to public resources, industrialists, especially embedded in right-wing parties of the time, they exercised oligopolistic or monopolistic practices which remained the ultimate basis of their social reproduction. In short, big industrialists became an 
infant capitalist class whose very existence became an impediment to the further development and deepening of capitalist social relations in Turkey. And in this context, what is interesting to note is that these industrialists embraced they 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 embraced Kemalist secularism and nationalism to protect their monopolistic privileges. In other words, Kemalism of the post-war period, post-Second World War period, generated a form of capitalism in which old Kemalist secularism and nationalism, with very minor modifications, continued to be used to keep the gates of the state and economy close to potential contenders. So, and who were these contenders? Well, um, they were most notably the radical left, Kurds, and bourgeois classes linked to political Islam. And furthermore, what is interesting is that on the... Okay, so we said that on the one hand, industrialists themselves embraced Kemalist secularism and nationalism to protect their monopolistic privileges. But on the other hand, the radical left and even Kurds used Kemalism as well to overturn elitist and exclusionary interpretations and practices of Kemalism itself during this period. So while Kemalism was often invoked to maintain the stability of an oligopolistic capitalism, the lower classes also used Kemalism to counter Kemalism's own elitism. In other words, marginalized segments of society radicalized and turned Kemalism's uh, non-class vision of nation into an outcry, into a demand for greater political and economic equality. So the bottom line is that coming to the end of the 1970s, the Jacobin legacy of Kemalism was either used to create an oligopolistic capitalism or was used by lower classes to contest and perhaps smash capitalism altogether. Um, you alluded to um, the emergence of the Islamist right uh, as one of these uh, groups that were challenging the Jacobin model um, during the 1960s and 1970s. Um, the current Islamist government, led by Recep Tayyip Erdogan's Justice and Development Party, traces its roots to the National Vision Movement, which emerged in the 1970s. Um, what grievances did religious conservatives, and particularly the uh, um, uh, religious conservative economic actors uh, have against the Jacobin model. Hmm. Okay, so um, I've so far argued that Kemalism, partly due to its Jacobin legacy, was either used to defend an oligopolistic capitalism or to smash capitalism altogether. What is equally interesting is that the blueprint for a non-Jacobin capitalism or for a capitalism proper was being cooked elsewhere in an entirely non-Kemalist, entirely non-Jacobin social and intellectual context. In the 1960s and 1970s, a new bourgeois class was in the making in Anatolian towns. These were completely detached from the social and intellectual resources of the original Republican project, and they were organized in the Islamic, in an Islamic socio-political movement known as Milli Görüş Hareketi, or the National View Movement. The conventional view about Milli Görüş holds that the Anatolian bourgeoisie of the 1970s which was the engine of Milli Görüş, was essentially a protectionist, inward-looking, and non-competitive group of entrepreneurs in favor of a statist industrialization strategy. 
These businessmen were, according to this interpretation, these businessmen were disgruntled. They were angry due to their exclusion from credit channels. But they were also afraid of the potential impact of free trade, the prospect of joining the European economic community, and etc. So, in short, the conventional interpretation of Milli Görüş holds that it was led by small Islamic merchants whose relation to modern capitalism was at best ambiguous. I contest this view in my book by arguing that the national view was not a semi-capitalist organization, but instead it provided the blueprints for a novel capitalist development strategy which would end capitalism's complicated coexistence with Jacobinism in Turkey. In other words, Milli Görüş unburdened, uh, unburdened capitalist development in Turkey from the legacies of Jacobinism, and as such, it offered a fresh foundation for capitalist development itself. And I base my argument on the writings and speeches of the leader of Milli Görüş, Nejmetin Erbakan. Uh, Erbakan, uh, in my view, tried to unburden modernization from its Jacobin component, which he saw as responsible for causing a common, which, which which he saw, um, which he saw as responsible for causing what he calls communist anarchy and creating a corrupted capitalism. Right? And I argue that um, while short of a comprehensive economic plan, Arabakan's conception of social justice, his strategic reordering of state support and credit channels in ways to subordinate production to the dictates of international competition, his proposal to shift from parliament towards the executive, his support for a presidential system, his interpretation of secularism, and his attempt to link social and economic rights to productivity increases, provides the outlines of a novel project of capitalist development in Turkey. But of course, regardless of its intentions, regardless of Arabakan's intentions, the national view movement, Milli Görüş, was not powerful enough to realize its societal vision until the 2000s. But with the, with the, so they, they were either in the opposition or whenever they came to power, uh, they were in coalition governments, so they did not have the opportunity to realize their, uh, their, their, their future vision for Turkey. But with the neoliberal turn in the 1980s, with the, after the military intervention that brought about several neoliberal uh, reforms, uh, in the 1980s, the classes associated with and mobilized by uh, the national view movement became increasingly important in the politics and economics of Turkey. And when its legacy was taken up by the rise of AKP, by Tayyip Erdogan's AKP Justice and Development Party in the early 2000s, this would not mean just another phase of, neoliber- another phase of neoliberalism, as often assumed, but uh, the rise of AKP signaled the removal of the last remnants of Jacobinism, which were the key to maintain the economic and political privileges of the Kemalist elite. Therefore, I argue that almost um, a seven-decade-long complicated and complementary coexistence, Kemalism completely lost its ability to, to restructure capitalism um, under the rule of AKP. And the result... What is the result? The result is that disciplinary, authoritarian, and productivist Islam is rapidly replacing and transforming the political and cultural legacies of the earlier period.
So that brings your story up to the present, um, pretty much, uh, uh, and where things stand with the the current AKP government. Uh, um, now, I want to ask you personally about uh, what's next for you. Um, what are you working on now? Um, well, of course, I have a continuing interest in Jacobinism, especially the question if and to what extent my analysis of Jacobinism can be applicable to other parts of the world is something I'm seeking to develop in the future. But my most immediate research interest at the moment revolves around the question of Eurocentrism. Uh, I have already published a couple of articles on the question of Eurocentrism and currently working on another article on the same issue. Well, that sounds terrific. I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, as you, as you can tell from some of my rants earlier, uh, Eurocentrism is uh, a definite bugaboo for me. Something that really bothers me. So, I'm interested in hearing more about uh, your vision of what a uh, a non Eurocentric uh, uh, historical social science would be. Um, okay, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining me. This. Uh, I was my guest today was Aaron Dusgun, and the book that he wrote is Capitalism, Jacobinism, and International Relations: Revisiting Turkish Modernity, out from Cambridge University Press in 2022. Thank you very much for joining us on New Books and World Affairs. My pleasure.